are facing a mental health crisis, and it's more important than ever to have access to the support we need. That's why I'm grateful for BetterHelp, the largest online counseling platform in the world. BetterHelp is changing the way people get help with life challenges by providing convenient, discreet, and affordable access to licensed therapists. With BetterHelp, professional counseling is available anytime, anywhere, from your smartphone, computer, or tablet. If you're looking for support, sign up today at BetterHelp.com. Use the promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE to get 10% off sign-up fees. That's BetterHelp.com, promo code SOLVINGHEALTHCARE. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we have an amazing sponsored cast with the group Chen Med in Florida doing amazing things at a primary care level. We have this conversation with Changemaker, National Director of Primary Care for Chen Med, Dr. Fazel Syed. And I love this show. I love the show we did because we talk all about the main pillars of health. What they do is focus on prevention, on early intervention, and a holistic approach to end-of-life care, especially in this population that they see elder patients disenfranchised that don't have access to primary care. It really is amazing the work that they're doing with ChenMed. You hear us talk about the impact standard care is like in the states where a significant amount of people don't have insurance, or if they do have insurance, that deductible is prohibitive to for a lot of people to be able to access care. So this is taking the, that financial constraint out of the, the patient's hands, and they're able to to provide all the care for their patients despite their insurance policy. It really is something special. So without further ado, let's do this. We got Dr. Fazel Syed, the National Director of Primary Care for Chen Med. Welcome to the show, my friend. Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm very excited about this. Absolutely. So, Fazel, I think the best way to start off is your story, like how you landed with Chen Med, because I find this, this is a bit fascinating. Like it's not necessarily intuitive how you landed with this, with the company. Yeah. My, so my, I trained at an unopposed family medicine residency program in Columbus, Georgia. I always knew that I wanted to be a community health doctor, someone who works with underserved populations, uh, people who typically had little to no access to 
primary care. And so after I completed my residency training, I joined a very large community health center in Tampa, Florida, in Hillsborough County. At that time, Hillsborough County had some of the worst maternal mortality rates in the United States. I mean, it was worse than many third world countries. And 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 it was just basic stuff. I mean, just not um, these young mothers not having access to someone just to put their hands on their belly, you know, basic medical attention. And so that drew me to Florida. And uh, but while while I was at the community health world and I got into, you know, I became a, I was a physician there. I became the chief medical officer, you know, one of the largest community health centers in the country. When I joined, my focus was, hey, how can we increase access to primary care? And then I get into that space and I realize, well, it's not just about increasing access, but also making sure that the care that we give is effective. You know, so in the community health space, we're desperate. We're short staffed, short funded. You try to do as much as you can with just maybe one or two visits per patient per year. And so that that works for many people. You know, the average American's age is still 37, 38. When we talk about medically complex seniors, uh, people over the age of 65, uh, we're talking about 45 million people, 15, roughly 15% of the American population. So for the average American who's 37, 38 years old, going to the doctor or going to primary care once or twice a year, that's, that's okay. It, it, it'll work. But for somebody now who has multiple chronic medical conditions at the same time, five or more chronic medical conditions, plus all the issues of living on a fixed income, you know, where, where you're worried about where you live, who you live with, what you eat, when you eat, transportation issues, for example, then, you know, you need something more than, than just basic access. Then you need something a little bit more holistic. And so it was while I was at the community health center that I was at one of our conferences here in Florida. And at that conference, I saw the Chen Med booth. And, and it was while I was there and I saw the Chen Med booth there and I thought, I thought oh my gosh, you know, I saw this, this sign, I saw this face, this name, there were vans in Tampa with that name and they were picking up patients from the our neighborhoods that I couldn't I would beg doctors please work one day a month you know can you can you volunteer <laughs> <laughs> and and then here there was these vans going into neighborhoods that historically doctors wouldn't go into picking up patients providing transportation for them feeding them having socials with like karaoke and doing Bible study and doing all these wonderful things. I thought, how in the world is that even possible? And then so within a few weeks of even noticing that, I, I ran into Chen Med at a conference. Mm. And it was it was there, you know, I met with someone. I was there trying to recruit, uh, recruit a doctor for my community health center. And then I started a conversation with Chen Med and, and it was just an unbelievable you know, I, I like to call it, it was a kismet moment for me in my life. 
um, where the recruiter who was there said, hey, we're focused on the same neighborhoods as the community health centers, except our focus is with underserved seniors. Mm. So in the community health space, we like to think that, you know, we're looking after the most vulnerable, underserved patient population, which we do in community health. But out of the entire community health population, if you think about the ones who are the most vulnerable, it's medically complex seniors mm. who are living on fixed incomes. Mm. And so I that's how I met Chen Med. It was at a conference. And then from there, I had more con- I had questions because Chen Med doesn't bill. Chen Med takes full financial risk, which is very rare in in healthcare delivery. Most of healthcare delivery in the United States, it's a billing model. It's a it's a billing system. It's a fee for service system. You know, you you have a visit with the doctor, and there's a billing code attached to that interaction. You know, depending on the level of complexity of the documentation and and the length of time spent on the visit. And so at ChenMed, ChenMed didn't operate within that that model. The goal at ChenMed wasn't isn't to bill more. And I just thought, well, how is that possible <laughs> that that you have a physician led group basically taking on uh, all the responsibility for total cost of care, paying for all the hospitalizations, paying for every medication, all the doctors with every emergency room visit, like, how is that possible? How do you, how do you make money in something like that? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're dealing with all the social issues that we deal with in, in the community health space. Um, And so I started having conversations with physician leaders at Chen Med. And before I knew it, I found myself leaving the, the community health world and joining ChenMed as a full risk primary care doctor. That's how I started my career at ChenMed. Wow. And and so you le- you legit saw the some of the true challenges out in the community. Like like what you were describing even that ma- maternal fetal health which honestly breaks your heart when you think about it. Like the access to care was a true issue. Absolutely. Uh, if you, you know, if for most people, for most people who, you know, if you, if you cannot afford, you know, it, so if you zoom out for a second and you look at, okay, we got a population of 330 million people. So out of 330 million people currently right now in the United States, there's still about 30 million people who don't have health insurance. They don't have any health insurance. Mm. Then Outside of that, you have people who have health insurance, but they can't afford their co-pays or deductibles. That's another 40 to 60 million Americans on top of that. So if you if you either don't have insurance or you can't afford your co-pays or deductibles, then suddenly you have to make very real decisions about the cost of care. Is it worth my time to take off of work to go see the doctor. So if if we don't see it or if we don't feel it, we just continue on in our lives. Mm. And so medically, let's say if you pick on something like uh, high blood pressure, hypertension. So we know that cardiovascular disease 
affects over 140 million Americans, right? And over 80% of that is fueled by hypertension. You know, hypertension is a huge driver of cardiovascular disease in the United States. But here's the thing. 95% of hypertension has no symptoms. That's why they call it, that's why they call it the silent killer. Mm. So for most people who are going on in our life, think about your typical our typical lives in the United States. We're just going, 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 going. Right. If it's something, you know, I, I no, no, I will wait. I will wait until if it's not impacting me, I'll take something, give me some quick pill or give me something quick so I can keep on moving in my I don't have time to slow down in my life. What's the saying go in the United States? Uh, that when you're young, you sacrifice your health for wealth. Mm. And then when you become old, you sacrifice all that. <laughs> oh, you sacrifice all that wealth for health. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it really is a great point that a lot of people, despite whether you have insurance, can't afford the co-payments or what have you, or a significant proportion of the population does not have insurance. That they're stuck with some really tough decisions. And as you mentioned, when it comes to some of our more, most uh, common ailments, you, like the silent killer, as you mentioned, hypertension, you, a lot of people aren't seeking medical attention. So when when you look at that and then you look at what Chen Med is doing, like how are they achieving this? Like what, walk me through, like you did paint an excellent picture of kind of the the care that they're providing and so forth, but how 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 are you guys able to to make this magic happen? Well, basically, ChenMed is transforming healthcare for underserved seniors. So it's a it's a very focused uh, it's a focused population uh, where where we're putting our attention. Um, if you zoom out again, like to that number. When we think about seniors, we have 45 million plus around 45 million seniors in the United States. So far as community health centers are concerned, about 30 million Americans get their medical care from one of these community health centers. There are like 1,400, 1,500 community health centers all across the country. And 10 million of those 30 million people who go to community health centers are seniors. So if you look at all 45 million seniors across the United States, there are about 10 million of them who are getting their medical care through a community health center. And so ChenMed is focused on those underserved seniors. And most of these of the health centers, most of healthcare delivery is that billing model that I talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. ChenMed is not like that. ChenMed is what's called fully capitated, meaning we pay for everything. If the cost of care is expensive, it's on us. If it's complicated, it's on us. And um, and our average patient is over 70 years old with five or more chronic medical conditions. Very different population. It's a very focused population. It's very different looking after a 70-year-old versus a 35-year-old. Mm -hmm. Like how comprehensive is the care? Like say if they need physiotherapy, they need speech language pathology. Like is there is there areas that that aren't being addressed when it comes to a, a comprehensive approach? We pay for everything. Wow. So so through the Medicare Advantage program, 
See, we have the full risk contracts through Medicare Advantage. And then what that does is that gives us the flexibility to basically meet our patients' needs where the need exists. Mm -hmm. And we do this by basically what you do is you turn everything on its head. Suddenly, primary care is the, the hub of the wheel instead of the language of, you know, primary care being the tip of the sphere. You know, there's a lot of language, primary care is the tip. We're like, no, 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 primary care is more of the hub of the wheel. And, you know, so when you're the hub of the wheel, then the entire healthcare delivery model, it revolves around the doctor-patient relationship. You see, in the billing model, in the fee-for-service model, the doctor-patient relationship has become very transactional. Hmm. People feel it. When you're a patient in the billing model, you very much feel it. Your, your insurance, your copay, you're constantly talking about money and how much this will cost and how much that will cost. Uh, the intimacy of the doctor-patient relationship goes away, like with any relationship. As soon as a relationship becomes transactional, you know, even banks have figured out a way, like the most transactional right, when you're doing banking. But even banking has become a nice experience when you go to the bank. I mean, there are all these people, they try to make it feel like, hey, you're part of, you're part of, you want, they want your experience to be a nice experience, even though they're dealing with mostly transactions. But with something as intimate as our health, you know, that should not feel transactional. You know, we shouldn't, shouldn't apply the laws of supply and demand with our health like oh this person is in need of medical attention now we can make money so the the fee for service healthcare delivery system it is a chief complaint system meaning that a patient has to present with a chief complaint and and that you know that works that works when patients are coming saying hey i have a problem and and the doctor just can uh, address that individual problem, but that does not work so far as prevention is concerned. That doesn't concern, like where's the incentive for me as a, I'm 43 years old now, and where does the incentive come for me? And I'm, I'm, you know, I don't take any medications. So where does the incentive come for me to go for a regular checkup mm. if I feel fine? Mm. You know, I feel fine, I feel good. Where's the incentive for me to take the time out to block a morning so I can go so I can go get my routine checkup. It makes much more sense for me to wait till there's some issue that comes up that I'll go end up seeking medical attention. And for most people, it it's functional. Is it ideal? No, but it's functional. But when you're talking about medically underserved, complex seniors, suddenly now it's a much more bigger deal because small things that you can't prevent or nip in the bud, they can have disastrous consequences very quickly. I want to piggyback on something you said, though. I, I really love the idea of, of addressing people from a preventative standpoint, because when you think about it, by the time, like as an ICU doc, for example, by the time they come to us, especially at that demographic, it's too late. Like your life is not going to be the same. You're not going to be at your same baseline if you survive. But if you have that access to address things early on or from in a preventative fashion, 
man, the downstream implications can be so tremendous. Like you, you really are looking at preventing yourself from needing acute care, preventing yourself from needing ICU. And then also from a soft spot for me, hearing that you're, you're hitting up the underserved, often racialized communities is, is something that as healthcare providers, we need to do more of. And so I, I, I am loving everything that you're mentioning here. You know, that somewhere, you know, we, we, everyone talks to when people outside of the United States say, Oh, we'd love to have your problems. A million doctors for 330 million people, one doctor for every 300 or so Americans. What a great problem to have. And you're always complaining that you don't have enough doctors. And then, so then we have to tell them, but, it's, but hey, but here's the thing. We only have about 97,000 board certified family physicians. We're split 90-10 the wrong way so far as primary care is concerned. So then what ends up happening? Primary care ends up being delivered by all the wrong people in all the wrong places. So you end up having a very limited scope primary care. Most most people, when most people think of primary care, they think of three things. Hey, referral renewals to the specialists, refill the medications, and if you're lucky, wellness visits. That's it. Primary care doctors are called providers. Same as the, the doctors, as the nurse practitioners visit, same, all called providers. They, they're essentially providing the same, same level of care. In most of the fee-for-service environments, they have thousands of patients. They're seeing many, many people every day. The goal is a productivity. How many patients are seen every day? And how much RVUs are you generating every day? And that's what happens when you have a hospital-based healthcare delivery system like what we have in the United States. The United States has a hospital-based healthcare delivery system where hospitals now own 70 80% of all the outpatient facilities across the country. That wasn't the case 40 years ago. You know, it started happening in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't think anybody thought that it would end up becoming what it has become today. And so you end up having, if a patient has a simple, let's pick on a joint issue, I don't know, like a, a knee, knee pain, for example. If the doctor is busy seeing 25 30 plus people every day. What time does a primary care doctor have to do a comprehensive knee exam? It's much easier to just put in the referral, go to the orthopedic surgeon. Or if you're lucky, you can get a, maybe a knee x-ray. I don't know. It's done in a manner that's completely inefficient. So then the orthopedic surgeon ends up doing the, the primary care evaluation of the knee pain at the orthopedic surgeon rate. But if you're in an RVU-based system and the hospitals own 70 to 80% of the practices, where would you want the RVUs generated? You'd rather have the RVUs generated by what primary care is being done by the, 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 inter the specialists, mm -hmm. even the non-interventionalists. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trained to do all of these things, and then you get out into the world. And it's like, no, 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 we don't want, you have to refer this. You don't have time to do it, so you, you refer it. And then everybody complains that primary care is not doing enough. Wow. And then if they're not being done by the specialists, 
where else is primary care being done today? Primary care is being done in urgent care centers. Yeah, go to the urgent care, and then it's a it, you can generate more RVUs. Now they have standalone emergency rooms. Standalone emer these emergency rooms are not even attached to the hospital, but they can bill in emergency room rates. I don't know if you have that where you are. What what part of the country are you in? We're in uh, in in Canada. So yeah, the yeah we uh, <laughs> much different world, my friend. But and what what does RVU stand for? Relative value unit. Right. So it's it is the it is a language of billing in the United States. The more RVUs you generate, the by the more billing codes you generate, the more revenue, more profit. The, it's a billing system. The United States healthcare delivery system is mostly fee for service. We don't operate within that system. You know, we operate in the fully capitated or full risk value based care model. Mm. And yeah. so the goal for us is not to bill more. You know, the goal for us is to actually improve health. See, if if care delivery is more efficient, right? So say in the hospital-based system, if primary care, let's say pneumonia, somebody, a hemodynamically stable person has pneumonia, like me, I had pneumonia, what is it now, 2023, I had pneumonia in 2018. And I went to one of these standalone emergency rooms. So I went over there and I had the usual, you know, the workup for, uh, I was short of breath. I couldn't catch my breath. Horrible fever, 106, 104 fever, very sick. I go to the emergency and I had a, a left lower lobe pneumonia. So I had chest X-ray. I had Tylenol. I had Rocephin. I had azithromycin. I had an EKG and I had an IV fluid. Do you know how much the bill was for that? Those couple hours for those that treatment? I, I don't even want to guess. Uh, you 10000 $10,000. Jesus. Okay. Man. At the emergency room. That's how much it costs oh for God. pneumonia to go to get it treated in the emergency for those things. And uh, my insurance ended up paying like $7,000. They settled, paid like $7,000 for that, for those couple hours. So when I got the bill, you know, the summary of what the insurance paid and all that stuff, I took that bill to one of our clinics because we, we do all of that in the outpatient setting, in our primary care setting, right? For our patients, patients don't feel well, well, we'll we'll give them the IV. We have the X-ray there. You know, we have Rocephin in the centers. We have azithromycin. We have the Tylenol. So I, I, I went through and I asked um, my office manager, and she went through and gave me an itemized breakdown of how much it would cost. And she said, "Oh, you know, Dr. Saya, the Tylenol is not even a penny. <laughs> Tylenol is cheap. Azithromycin is like forty cents. Rocephin is like eighty cents." The IV fluid is like a dollar. She said, for us, it's like $7. The, the cash price for a two-view chest X-ray, we don't, we, don't, we don't charge for that because we do that in-house. But if we sent it around our city in Tampa, it's about $15 for the cost for a two-view chest X-ray. So, she, of course, the cost of, of treating the pneumonia changes where you're getting the treatment. So by doing it in primary care, it's much more affordable, right? Wow. Like that final tally, outpatient versus eMERGE, significant. And I mean, and this is more of a problem in the st in Canada, I would imagine, than in the States. But we also think about the this, this strain you're putting on the emergency rooms. Like our emergency room wait times often are significant. So if you had an issue that you could normally see in a primary care 
that can d- directly impact the flow in terms of uh, acute care. So, of course, tremendous, tremendous. And and for patients, it's terrible. If you have yeah. to go to the hospital, nobody wants to go to the hospital. Yeah. But if you have to go to the hospital and you have to see random people, you're seeing random nurses, random doctors. Uh, nobody wants to go to the hospital. I'd much rather go to my primary care doctor um, to get, you know, somebody, the person who knows me the best, the staff who knows me, the front desk, they know me, my, the clinical support staff, they know who I am. Uh, so you can imagine in, in a model that is focused on improving health and delivering care much more efficiently, like real true high value, high quality primary care, the waste in the healthcare delivery system is not, is not by, is not because of, you know, primary care doctors not seeing enough of patients. The waste is because, you know, we have unnecessary hospitalizations, Mm. which is fueled by unnecessary emergency room visits which is fueled by this 90-10 wrong split we have in the country so far as primary care is concerned. So we got to transition away from this hospital-based healthcare delivery system to one that is based on high-quality primary care. And, um, and so up until very recently, I mean, if you look at the waste, waste has been well-documented for years. I remember I first read about waste in the healthcare delivery system when we crossed the $700 billion mark with waste in the United States. That was back in 2007, 2008. And when you mean waste, do you mean like financial waste? Is, is, is that like when you- Well, it's all waste, right? Medical, yeah. medical care that's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, medical care that is unnecessary. So I remember- you know, so when we, because we pay for everything, right, we, we're fully responsible. So I remember thinking, when I started thinking of waste, I thought of things like, you know, unnecessary specialty referrals, mm-hmm. right? Uh, overprescribing of brand name drugs when you have generic, perfectly fine generic equivalents available, you're overprescribing brand name drugs. But those are not the main drivers of waste, they're actually very, very distant second and third driver. The main driver of waste is what I told you. It's the unnecessary hospitalizations fueled by unnecessary emergency room visits mm-hmm. when primary care is delivered in all the wrong places. And yeah. that's what drives waste. So if you can reduce unnecessary hospitalizations, if you can reduce unnecessary emergency rooms, why do you think all these standalone emergency rooms are popping up all over the place? You think that they would be popping up all over the place with if most of the patients going to the emergency room are hemodynamically unstable, yeah, they have a term for that. Fast track. Hemodynamically stable people seeking medical care in the emergency room setting for whatever reason. And they're fast track. Yeah. And they get billed at the emergency room rates. That's what happens. And and you can afford to do that when the average American's age is only 37 or 38. Mm-hmm. Right? But now we have a growing number of seniors. And, and we also have had the cultural shift from where we were 40 years ago. So far as primary care doctors and independent practices versus having this hospital system, hospital-run practices and, you know, employed physicians and all of the changes that have come 
as well. You know, a lot is a lot has changed, of course, over the last 40 years, right? No. And so now we're at a point right now we're saying, oh my gosh, you know, we now spend over four trillion dollars on healthcare in the United States. We spend more money on healthcare, but you know what the entire GDP of Russia is? No. Same as that, four trillion. Less than half. Wow. What we spend on healthcare for 330 million people with the average American age only being 37, 38 is more than two Russia's entire GDPs. And that includes everything. Their space program, their their education, you know, their entire economy, their war machine, you know, their military, everything, everything, their entire economy. What we spend on healthcare is more than double their entire economy. Just to put things in perspective, because, you know, in America, we start talking about big numbers like monopoly money, right? But it's <laughs> let's put some perspective for God's. And we don't have we don't have the health outcomes. You would think with all the money that we spend that we'd have, you know, we'd have highest quality health outcomes, great life expectancy, for example, great access to medical care. No, we don't. We don't have that. I mean, this is the argument for Chen Med, right? It's the, the idea that you traditionally in the United States of America invested significant amounts in healthcare. Yet, when you look at, for example, infant mortality numbers, other health outcome metrics, it's not number one. And so this is why I get excited about talking about these, these ideas of why we need to focus on, on prevention as you guys are doing. You know, when you said it, you said we're not number one uh, in healthcare. You're absolutely right. You know what we're number one in? What's that? We're number one in sick care. Yeah. People come from around the world to America to see to seek the best doctors for the most complicated situations. We're very good at sick care, if you can afford it. Hmm. Yeah. If you can afford it. But if you can't, then, and the system is a system where if the doctor listens to a heartbeat, doctor gets paid, doctor orders a test, doctor gets paid. Prevention is not a goal. So it the the choice that we offer is a much more inspirational one, especially for clinicians. Mm. Because for us, if you think about what drove us through medical school, right? It was that intimacy, that sacred doctor with that doctor-patient relationship. The goal, the goal should be to earn trust, build trust in order to help better be better at influencing patients to making better decisions and that could be with anything with screenings vaccine diet whatever be, the, do, the the doctors and the healthcare delivery system become more coaches for patients with complex medical situations rather than consultants that you just call in periodically to just hey address this thing here right now now it's a much more it's a much more holistic view of each individual patient's total care, not just from when they're sick. So, so you have to make you have to make it very simple. So when the goal is, well, people will say, well, your goal is to just save money. We've seen this before. You just keep the patients from seeing the specialist, right? 
they missed the, the they missed the big point. The main driver of waste is not unnecessary specialty referrals. Of course, that is wasteful. But if but if I restricted a necessary specialty referral, what would happen to the patient? They'll end up in your ICU. That's what happened. They'll end up in the emergency, not in the ICU per se. Of course, you know, it's rare to go down that path. But they'll for sure, they'll end up in the hospital if they get sick. If they needed to see a specialist, and now they don't see a specialist, they get sick and they end up in the hospital. So the goal is not, hey, reducing unnecessary specialty referrals. You know, the goal is making sure that primary care is delivered in the right places at the right time by the right person. And you have everyone aligned saying, hey, we got to improve health. Hmm. So then the question becomes, well, what are your focus? Like, what's the focus of the teams hmm. with improving health? Because you can look up online, there's 14 pillars of health, eight pillars, so many different. We have it simplified to three pillars of health. Improving health means three things. Number one, it means prevention. So with prevention, it's not a take it or leave it approach. Here's your flu shot, take it or leave it. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a conversation. So then the language of care delivery matters. How we respond to somebody who is resistant or flippant to whatever recommendation you're making, whether it's whatever the flu shot or anything in prevention, that matters. How we respond matters more than whatever it is we're saying. Mm. You know, we, we have to train doctors. You know, we have to train our doctors to resist the urge to say three words so far as prevention is concerned. What's that? That's not True. Those are fighting words. If a patient, if a doctor is coming to the patient saying, hey, I recommend this for prevention. I recommend this vaccine. And the patient comes back and the patient, let's say the patient is defensive. And the patient says, oh, but doctor this. And whatever they say. If we know whatever they're saying is not true, we have to train our doctors to resist the urge to say that's not true, even though they know what the patient's saying is not true. Because guess what happens when you as a doctor says to the patient, that's not true. Suddenly, what do you think the patient's going to do? Yeah, they're going to resist. Yeah. Then they instantly get into the fight or flight situation, defensive. And when when we switch from when we switch from the prefrontal, when we switch from having a conversation to now we're fighting, then you know the wrong part of the brain is activated and good luck trying to get to a better better outcome. So we have to train doctors. There's an art with how to how to respond to patients who are resistant or flippant. And and this is well studied for decades, motivational interviewing been studied for decades. There's an art to influence. It's not just, hey, take it or leave it. No, that doesn't, that doesn't work. So the first pillar of health is prevention. We have to train the doctors with how to be more effective with responding to patients who are, are resistant or flippant. I mean, it's easy. Anybody, 
you know, when a patient says yes, and we feel like we're, we're doing a great job, I mean, what did we do? We just offered anybody can offer. Uh, the 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 real challenge is is helping motivate somebody to um, make a better better choice, especially so far as prevention is concerned. So that's the first pillar of health. The second pillar of health is intervention, early intervention, the concept of preventing small problems from becoming big ones, nipping it in the butt. How do you do that? Well. Right now, we were talking about the, you know, the healthcare delivery system in the United States being transactional. Even the language is transactional. So if somebody shows up unscheduled to the doctor's office, what do we call them? The front desk will come back and say, hey, we've got a walk-in. Mm. Like you see at a barber shop or something like that. Oh, we got a walk-in. Walk-in, sign in the walk-in sheet. You know, but if a patient shows up unscheduled, is that an inconvenience to the clinic? How dare this person show up unscheduled with their problems? I have all these scheduled patients. Scheduled patients are the priority. These sick patients are not a priority. Like life's emergencies happen on a schedule. (laughs) Exactly. Right? I mean, that's why we became doctors and nurses in the first place, is to help people in their times of need, right? So mm-hmm. even, even the language of healthcare delivery is not conducive to early intervention. If a patient shows up unscheduled, hey, we're booked. Go to the urgent care down the street. Go to the emergency room. Call 911. You know, patients will go from primary care offices to the hospital because they, there, wasn't, there wasn't access. They didn't have time. Because the system is not set up that way. It's not that the that the doctors and the nurses weren't capable of taking care of, of most of what they see. If somebody is hemodynamically stable enough to go to the to the clinic, you know, we don't deal with those types of situations often where it's a life and death situation like what you see in the ICU, right? You have some time to intervene, especially if you have the medications on stat on site, if you have um if you have the monitoring and the teams in place to be able to respond appropriately, if you had that set up, then of course. So early intervention is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot easier to be that trusted person for patients when with doing little things like giving the patients our cell phone numbers. Every one of our patients has their doctor's cell phone number. You know, and the doctors want the patients to call them. Let me know if you don't feel good or just come. I mean, that sounds like the pinnacle of early intervention, right? You know, <laughs> and, and so those are developing. Yeah. So we nip it in the bud. Much more effective. Mm-hmm. To do, I told you how much it costs for us to treat something crazy like a pneumonia. But think about like COPD exacerbations, for example. Mm. For most most places, it doesn't matter where you are. Uh, most of the time, we're going to, you know, it's going to be like a duoneb treatment, steroids, maybe, maybe antibiotics, maybe not, maybe oxygen, maybe not, maybe IV, maybe not, you know, but for the most part, it's pretty much the same. The doctors have it already in their mind. They have their favorite go-to verbal order that they give up, oh, duonebs, this, that, they just give it and, and the staff will watch and the doctor will move on to see the scheduled patients. Even if I'm running behind, 
and I have three patients waiting to see me. Do you know what the response is? When I tell the patients myself, hey, I'm sorry, I have a patient who's having a hard time breathing. Do you know what the response is every single time? Go ahead. Yeah, like... Doctor, please, no, 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 no. Go take care of that patient. You never know. Next time, that could be me. Yeah. It's like a culture almost. Like, they, they see that you're treating people so so well and with respect, and you've earned their trust. Like, that's the number one thing I always te- teach the trainees. Like, it always comes down to rapport and, and trust. Otherwise, that therapeutic relationship is not going to exist. So... Uh, I, I, I love these pillars. I'm so curious. To, what's the third the third pillar? Third pillar is what what the role of physicians was for most of written history. You know, if we if we we have five thousand years of written history, up until about 150 years ago, the role of physicians was mostly to help ease the transition from this life to the next life. Hmm which is an uncomfortable topic for most of us. And we don't like talking about dying and death. It's an uncomfortable topic for most of us in, in healthcare delivery. Forget about people outside, even for us within. It's uncomfortable. You know, most, most people want to die in their own bed. But sadly, most end up dying what's called an institutional death. The number is somewhere like eight or nine Americans out of 10 want to die in their own bed. But close to that number end up dying somewhere, an institution, whether it's a nursing home, hospital, somewhere, it's an institutional death. And the reason why, it's because that, yes, that too, easing of suffering. I mean, the act of dying for most people is not the seconds before you stop breathing. (laughs) Or the or the moments before the heart stops beating, it's usually a process. Mm. And so, easing suffering is improving health. Easing suffering is not giving up. And there's a limit to what we can do for each each individual person. Everybody has their own unique set of circumstances. We've seen it all the time. You know how many times we see it in the hospital that you have two people with very similar situations, but because of their past medical history, their outcomes are very different. Or maybe not even the past medical history, maybe it was the past social history that the outcomes ends up being very, very different with that particular chief complaint that brought them, you know, to the medical system requiring some sort of intervention in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so in our world, if we're good at easing suffering, if patients get to do what they want to do, have an honorable death with dignity, surrounded by their loved ones and the peace and comfort of their own home with the proper teams of hospice, palliative care, all of that, right? You know, that, that is improving health as well, too. It's uncomfortable. But that is something that that's actually what most of medicine was up until about 150 years ago. Yeah. I mean, one of the most ironic studies, I don't know if you've come across this one, it was about 2010. Uh, 
there was a study of late stage lung cancer patients. They got randomized to getting early palliative care versus standard of care. And not only did the early palliative care people get, you know, have better symptom control and, and quality of life scores, but they lived longer, ironically. And I think it really comes down to when you look at things more holistically and you treat the patient as a whole, you know, after this could be some um, surprise, some, some surprising outcomes. So I, I really, I really am a big believer of, I mean, all three pillars, but that, that, that piece at the end to number three of end of life care and, uh, and, and, and that palliative approach is, is essential, especially with the demographic that you're talking about. With everyone, with every human being, it's mm -hmm. all about these trusting relationships with the healthcare delivery system, which you don't have if it's a transactional one. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a relationship, if you have a relationship based model of care delivery, then the patients and their families come to the primary care delivery system to help them make the lifestyle changes in order to achieve better health outcomes in those three pillars. My friend, this is what you what you and Chen Med are throwing down is is game changing. And it's really inspirational to to think of once again that holistic approach the emphasis on preventative medicine, the emphasis on reaching out to the people that need us the most, the patients that need us the most. Personally, I can't commend you enough. This has been an absolute gem of a, of a show. How can people reach you? Well, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten active on social media um, in the last couple of years. And so please come visit chenmed.com. We have a bunch of blogs and educational opportunities. There's a bunch of information there to learn about how to how to have a different kind of healthcare delivery system. Uh, we have monthly value-based care socials. Uh, we have monthly socials where doctors will come on uh, in a virtual way. You can you can register when you go to the website. So every month we have these opportunities for people to interact live and ask questions and comment. You know, how do you make this? How do you make something like this work? It's such it's such hard work. How can you, how do you make that happen? How do you influence people? They're right. It sounds, it, you know, it sounds like it's easy, but it's not simple. So it's, it's hard. It is hard work. It takes time. It requires a lot of training. You know, at my community health center, my orientation was the morning of the first day. <laughs> <laughs> With us, it's four weeks, four weeks oh, of training, so good. a lot of training, a lot of training. So yeah, come visit us at chenmed.com. Dr. Fasil Sayat, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. That was amazing. Thank you. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Podcast Nation, that was beautiful. If you want to hear more from us, follow us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our Substack page, quadcast.substack.com. And that's a way to stay up to date with all that we're producing videos, blogs, podcasts courses all on one platform that's qualcast.substack.com leave that five star rating wherever you're listening to the show thanks so much for listening and we'll connect again real soon peace